It's my great privilege to convey to you today some samples from my Rumi interview project. It's subtitled 99 Poems from the Mifnewi, or Masnavi sometimes called, uh, which is a huge poem that uh, Rumi wrote. It's been divided up first by the German translator, whom I use, and then a little more by me, uh, into 99 poems, and then I wrote replies. So there we have, just like a talk show or an interview. Now, uh, Rumi wrote in Persian. Uh, I don't read Persian, but uh, I can certainly read German. And very luckily, in the age of Goethe, the golden age of German literature, we also had, at the same time, a golden age of what were called Eastern studies. And uh, so uh, Toluk, T-H-O-L-U-C-K is his last name, is a wonderful example of a man who was a superb scholar in comparative religion and at the same time a gifted and artisanal craftsman-like poet. So he translates from Rumi in uh, the same beat scheme, so far as I can tell. It's very close, certainly, uh, to what Rumi used, namely one and two and three and four and five and six. A trochee is one and, so you have six of them, trochaic hexameter, and then one and two and three and four and five and six, not six and, the, the last syllable is missing. A missing syllable is called a catalexis. So what is the total diagnosis? Trochaic hexameter catalectic. That's what you'll be listening to. And uh, he uses rhymed couplets very close uh, to the uh, roomy melody scheme, and so do I. I, I am trying to be form faithful, and in each of my interview replies, I use the form that uh, uh, Toluk's Rumi has just taught me. So now we're set to go. Let's begin with an introduction. Rumi is the greatest uh, and certainly the most prolific of all the mystic poets. Certainly he is the pinnacle of Sufi poetry in Persian in the Middle Ages. Uh, he lived in the 13th century, and uh, uh, he has two basic uh, in inclusive principles. They are principles of inclusion, and they are characteristic um, uh, of Sufism as a whole, which Rumi in his work uh, distills to uh, a, 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 a perfect intensity. And these themes are all religions are one, religious inclusiveness, and all spirits are one, inclusiveness of spirit. Let me take a look then uh, and just present to you a sample of his presentation of each theme with a short reply. Here we go. Hindus will in Hindu art speech offer praise. Zoroastrians contrasting prayer raise. Neither charm I need nor harm will either do. All these folk are pure and pearls will each bestrew. This is wonderful. So he talks, he begins his poem with, uh, or the poem as, as we've shaped it here, with the Hindus and the Zoroastrians. Sufism also had a heavy influence besides that from Hinduism, from Buddhism, from Judaism, from Christianity. It's the goal of Sufi poetry. It's the goal of Sufi practice and teaching to transcend all the religions which are formulated and, and which have names. Uh, so uh, uh, he includes here, interestingly, not only the Hindus, but the Zoroastrians. I didn't think about that, 
uh, until I read this poem, The Zoroastrian Influence on Sufism, but it might uh, come, it be what, com what is coming through in Rumi's very special use of fire imagery. Uh, the Zoroastrians, an ancient Persian religion, were um, uh, venerators of fire, and uh, the, the religion is still practiced by the Parsis in India today, for example, as in other places. And uh, in, in Rumi's favorite vision of God in heaven, uh, God, the throne of God is circled by the entire created universe or pluriverse, which consists of particles of energy. Every one of us is a particle of energy or an assemblage of particles of energy, which are called, each of them is a zarra. And they are uh, all engaged in the same vast cosmic whirling dance around the throne of God. And that brings to mind the fact that Rumi is the founder of the whirling dervishes. And in fact, when I went to the mausoleum, the, the Emerald Tower, where he is buried at uh, Konya in Turkey, he having lived the last few decades of his life in Turkey, I heard the the dervish flute playing all the time. The whirling dervishes are actually uh, a, a enacting a very solemn ritual. I saw them performed here uh, in uh, 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 the Anderson Center at Binghamton University and right here in my hometown. And the dervish performance was calm and stately and composed and contemplative with every gesture having meaning. So it isn't a frenzied whirl, but in the fire vision of Rumi that I just recounted to you, there is a speedy and a, a, and a, a, a lightning-like flashing whirl around the throne of God. Let's try this poem again, this time without any interruptions or distractions. Hindus will in Hindu art speech offer praise, Zoroastrians contrasting prayer raise. Neither charm I need, nor harm will either do. All these folk are pure, and pearls will each be strewn. I for outward things and word flaws never care. What's within I seek, the heart condition there. Rubies found the youth where you but gravel see. You have seen the thorn, the rose and tulip he. Substance, there's the heart, mere accident, contingency, the word. Accident forget the substance having heard. If the essence at the table be your guest, mere contingencies a parasite at best. If in heart enkindled be a loving fire, image, metaphor, and word you'll not require. That's the root of it all. Warmth of heart, which is love. L Rumi teaches the religion of love. That's what Sufism is at its highest and most intense. Warmth of heart, here's my little reply, is primal spring of all we know. Intellect to winds will metaphor bestrow, fountained by our heart-fed deep imagining, which the fallible in fathomless outfling. Let our emblems born of human finitude, formed in earthly world, the heaven will elude. Lord and king in part are little human tools, risen from the wish to institute some rules. So when we say that God is a king or lord of heaven, king and lord are very feeble tools to describe ultimate being, which is not describable or knowable or nameable. Uh, in fact, Ibn Arabi, uh, Rumi's uh, uh, colleague and contemporary, says that every religion is a cup which gives to the water of spirit form and color, but the cup is not the water. 
Every sentence where one sees a noun and verb, rich realities will fallibly disturb. Thing and action, are they ever so distinct? God imagined them in essence interlinked. Emblems are a way the striver may explore. Of our Lord are you and I a metaphor. So imagination tries to go where, where intellect has feared or not, or perhaps uh, not wisely, not feared, uh, to tread. Because um, with imagination, we do get somewhat opaque, always fragmentary and rapid and vanishing, but at least one might hope partially valid um, uh, insights because God himself imagined the world and imagination is the, the best tool uh, whereby we may attempt to approach an never wholly adequate understanding. Okay, all the religions are one, and, and then all spirits are one. We'll do that next. When the eye's been opened by the light of day, spirit may lament that light must fade away. Should the spirit fear when light of day shall fail, pain's far stronger if no spirit light avail. Yet, in spirit, friend, you have a pair of eyes wanting clearer light than sun in higher skies. How I'd love to see myself in such a light, whether daytime handsome or as dark as night. Spirit image many places have I sought, yet by such a grace was nowhere ever taught till I learned at last the face of God upon. Spirit would discover mirror light had shone. Hallelujah, I cried, my soul at last I've found. Has not heaven in your holy eye been crowned? Careful, said illusion in a prudent tone. Not in him, your soul will in yourself be shown. Yet from eye divine, a fit reply there came. I am you, and you are I. We are the same. And my answer, soul and body, both to you, I, Lord, commend. Nothing do I fear, your presence you will lend. Such the statement I in youth was told to say, that my soul be tranquil at the close of day. Poet bravely made the crucial lesson clear. I, the soul and seed and center, needn't fear. I'm the likeness of the origin, and yes, fearless can by undistracted distracted action bless. Jesus taught that perfect love gets rid of fear. Moses, self and neighbor love, for both are dear. Life's a blessing that you never could deserve. See yourself in heaven and the truth you'll serve. Creature was created that it might create. You are being. Grateful stay in high estate. If God imagined the world and the poet's job is to be an imaginer, as it says in my little motto on the back screen, the beloved imaginer, then uh, uh, we are attempting to imitate the creator and be poets, he being, or she, or they, or whatever, being the primal poet. Okay, now I'd like to turn, having established those general guidelines, uh, 
to some of uh, Rumi's more specific teachings, uh, lessons, discoveries, observations. And these are conveyed in, through a wonderful technique that I truly love, and that's the technique of surprise. This is what makes Rumi totally a joyful experience to read. You just don't know what comes next, and after you've had your customary expectations shaken up a bit, you don't know exactly where you stand. Uh, so you start to think. That's the idea. Sufi always wants to jolt you out of customary patterns into new thought, new insight. So let's try this one. This is one of my favorites from the whole book. Said the prophet once, that's Muhammad, to one who suffered ills, here's a wish that dying hour with ease instills. Lord of love, allow me far from here to roam. Bring me in your love to ever-during home. Faithful ones, that is the righteous, the good souls, at resurrection time inquire. Were we wrong to think we'd view the hellish fire? Right through hell we understood our path would go. Why no smoke or flame, if that indeed were so? Uh, they may be familiar with the Christian tradition that Jesus, before being raised up, went to the underworld first. That is, he traversed uh, uh, the realm of hell. And so the righteous who have been resurrected to heaven, they wonder why they didn't go through any torment or, or at least uh, a brief view of it. Did they not also have to go through hell? And here's the answer. Came the answer fast. Believers, that was hell. Hell was where you were, the pit or the abyss, though it might appear a pleasure realm of bliss. All desires that offered torment for reward, you by virtue have transformed, in soul have soared. Flames of haughtiness that nothing leave unburned, you to rose bed of humility have turned. Mid the flower bed, the nightingales of praise, chaunting, chanting lords to me, resounding echo rays. Now you know why hell, abyss, and pit became fragrant Eden of delight and sacred name. Ah, you thought you were in hell, or rather, you thought you were in heaven, but you were actually in what most people call hell. For you, it was heaven, because your mentality transformed it. And what does this show? Heaven and hell are in you and in me and not elsewhere. Now, this is fascinating because in Milton's Paradise Lost, we find the following statement. The mind is its own place and of itself can make a heaven of hell, a hell of heaven. Mind can be a place and of itself can make heaven out of hell or hell of heaven. Take just the thought that Milton here enunciates. Isn't it what Rumi claimed? What so elates hearers of the wisdom Milton had inspired is the knowledge that what spirit had desired it attains by conquest over all but light. Such the might of love. How laudable that might. Who's the speaker of the words that Milton wrote in this drama of the fall? Surprised, we note, no one else but Satan. He, the prince of hell, is it of the underworld 
to us you'd tell? Milton thought so, never guessing he had turned hell to heaven, as from Rumi you have learned. This, is, this statement, the mind is its own place and of itself can make a hell, a heaven of hell, a hell of heaven. This was loved by the poet Shelley so much that when he wrote his famous world-class essay, uh, Defense of Poetry, he uses this as his personal motto, never telling us that it came from Milton's Satan, but then. Milton transformed the devil into an angel as he transfigured hell into heaven with a statement like that, which Rumi applauds with all his heart. Okay, now, that was a bit of a surprise, wasn't it? I promise you a couple more. Let's try. An anecdote about uh, Ali, who is the son-in-law and cousin of Prophet Muhammad. I don't need any uh, words of introduction to this. I think you'll just enjoy the story. Very suspenseful as it is. Works and self-advancement, Ali taught to scorn. Truths of sin and virtue were in him newborn. When in savage war, a knight God's lion hit, blood drunk sword was swung in swift reply to it. Hot with rage, the foe in prophet visage spat. Now you see the, the, uh, the, the enemy has attacked him and it ha hasn't succeeded in knocking him down. So the enemy, doubly angry, now spits into the face of Ali, who is also called a prophet. Hot with rage, the foe in prophet visage spat. One whose feet the moon would kiss, disgraced like that. Suddenly the prophet, countenance gone pale, sword in sheath replaced. Though courage didn't fail. Flabbergasted stands the trembling foe and cries, What has happened? Sword in battle? Quiet lies? Lightning like your gleaming sword blade would delight. Threatened not by flame, it now declines to fight. Ollie, who are known for keenest eagle eye, did you sign or wonder suddenly espy? Gentleness, your more than sword, will make me die. Watered by your wisdom will my tree rise high. Thousandfold the secrets to the soul averred, things the eye has never seen, nor ear has heard. God's own falcon of your spirit treasure fine, let a little part, O wealthy mind, be mine. Should men's eyes at once a higher wisdom see, yours by far the deepest were revealed to be. If Muhammad be of wisdom city king, you he made the gate, twill souls to entry bring. Open up the gate, let entrants have their will. Empty bowl with marrow and with fruit seed fill. Every breeze and every atom can it bear. Who would not believe a temple present there? Speak to us, O heaven falcon ever blessed, who upon the regal arm, the arm of God, have found your rest. Okay. Here's my comment. Cousin of the prophet and his son-in-law, Ali. What a rising light, a son of awe, 
Jesus-like, released from fight, he'll sheathe a sword. And, like Jesus, he'll in Shia be adored. Every day, his, every year his death, the faithful must bewail. When we've exited at length from mental jail, seeing pardon at the central heart of things, will forgiveness hail, for he's the king of kings. I'm alluding here to the Quran verse. Here it is. Chapter 42, verse 43. And verily, whoso is patient and forgiveth, lo, that verily is of the steadfast heart of things. Patience and pardon are at the steadfast heart of things. And what is ultimate being? God, if not the steadfast heart of things, who is here equated with patience, with forgiveness, and with pardon. Warriors who smitten hit the wrangler back, true originality will ever lack. Slaves to imitation having been attacked, mirroring the master they've in anger whacked. Acting, not reacting. Foe to so-called fact. Here's a man who'll she the weapon when he's smacked. Put it in the hilt, that sword, and use it no more. I want to clarify how my thinking in this last part of my reply was uh, uh, stimulated by William Blake, the, the English visionary and poet of the time of the Napoleonic Wars. Blake said, Newton has told us that in the world of physics, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So, in the human uh, uh, sphere of life, if a guy kicks you in the belly, that's an action. How about the equal and opposite reaction? You kick him in the belly right back. Equal, one, one kick equals another kick. Change of direction. First he kicked you, now you kicked him. Is this the way the spirit world operates? No. Spirit behaves in exactly the opposite way. Instead of being caused as a reaction to somebody else's ill-judged action, you are going not to be a mere imitator subject to the enslaving law of so-called cause and effect. You are going to do something not done before, not predictable, and issuing from yourself alone. Forgive. Forgive. That comes from you, and it is you. Surprises, right? Here's another one. This is a dialogue between some Chinese and some Grecians. They're called Grecians. They're from Byzantium, actually, which at the, this time is a chiefly Hellenic in culture. Said the Chinese men, will ever painters be? Said the Sultan, oh, sorry. Said the Grecians then, the painters, painters, we. Said the Sultan, please compete and let us see who a mural may create more skillfully. Greeks, the masters are of painting theory. Practice though will show, I'm sure you will agree. So the king a building indicates for each. Grecians and Chinese will see what height they reach. Thousand colors would the latter now require. Kindly grants the Shah whatever they desire. Every morning from his treasure house he'll bring hundred piles of color. He's a gracious king. 
Yet the heaps of hue the Grecians merely scorn. They for color annihilation each were born. All day long they polish. Wall at length must yield brightness like the shine of greening heaven field. When Cathayan painters, that's the Chinese, have their labor done, they proclaim it to the Shah by thunder drum, hasting to the place the brilliance he can see. Nearly overwhelmed by blessed gleam is he. When the Greeks unveil at last their mural face, sun rays through the cloud are breaking. Heaven grace, such a polishing, the Grecians gave their wall. It would mirror Chinese colors, one and all, Chinese colorations brightly unified, here more splendid seemed to the discerning eyed. No, my friend, the Sufis, Grecians are like these, free of book and master, they with virtue please. One's the task of Sufis on our planet, they make the heart more or pure mirror of our God each day. If the heart be mirror, lunar bright and clear, hundred thousand pictures perfect there appear. This is a very much loved story. It, it's been told uh, by lovers of Rumi, of Islam, and simply a perfect uh, metaphor uh, for hundreds of years. And yet I had to ask myself questions about it. Is a mirror so superior to a painting? Here are my thoughts. If the light of oneness be the color white, others all enfolding in a sum of light, tis the emblem of the love that in the heart houses all the hundred thousand fold of art. Yet in heart should treasure never buried be. God is color too. The lover true is he who the treasure of creation so outpoured that it hundred thousand fold might be adored. Tis by doing that we mirror one who makes. Ninety-nine the names of God the prophet takes, highest pleasure then reflecting heaven fires. Ninety-nine the names Muhammad thus acquires. Virtue thrives in mirror making, painting too. Rumi, I in conversation mirror you. See what I'm saying? I'm saying the mirror that the Grecians built mirrored what? It mirrored the Chinese painting. What does a painting mirror? It doesn't mirror a creation created. It mirrors the creative drive which is creating. Why? Because you're painting, you're doing something, you're creating, and in this way you are perfectly imitating, and imitation is surely a supreme act of love, the great creator of all. Writing poetry, you imitate the greatest poet, the originary poet, the originative poet, and in painting you imitate the primal painter. I just love to be stimulated to think by Rumi. And here is one last uh, uh, surprise example of Rumi's teaching, where he says, or pre presents what you might not expect. 
This is particularly interesting because uh, this is a story about a monk. Uh, Sufism is, is a, a, monk, a monastic practice. Uh, the Sufis wear habits and uh, hoods or cowls, and both of these traditionally are blue. And in this particular case, the, the uh, monks have gone to the Father Superior, the Pir, as he is called, to complain about the behavior of one of their number, who is a blabbermouth, a glutton, and a lazybones. Sufi monks, their wayward brother, dared despise, called him spider, likening themselves to flies. Scornfully would they complain to cloistral peer. Triply punished ought the spider be, that's clear. First, his non-stop mouth like bells will loudly play. Next, he'll eat three camels stock of food each day. Third, then seven sleepers, sleepier is he. Sheikh agreed at last. Then bring him here to me. He to Spider would explain an easy test. Now we have the Sheikh, the wise man, going, going to try to cure the misbehavior. Here's the moral rule. The golden mean is best. When a humor overflows the rightful bound, in the disproportion, illness will be found. Moses told of harmony, not wrong in this, yet correction helped when he a goal would miss. Jethro scolded, if you don't pay heed to me, all would profit if you'd merely silent be. Listen then, my friend, if you desire won't curb, you will need to leave us monks whom you perturb. Now the monk, in turn, provides a wise reply. You've got to be surprised, yes? Heaser fount of spirit lends a light from sky. It for every question gives an answer true, grants for every riddle easy keys for you. Thus the light declares, the golden mean is wise, yet the central path in wider context lies. What a camel, single water gulp might call, tiny mouse would deem a mighty waterfall. So the golden mean for each being relates to the scope, the range of that being's nature. And how are you going to find out the scope if you do not test the end as well as the middle? If an ant four breadcrumbs luckily should find, what's the middle path? Eat two, leave two behind. Eating all the crumbs at once would greed unloose. Leaving golden mean behind, he'd be a goose. Someone who ten rolls had bought will serve the mean, giving four to friends in poverty extreme. Oh, here we have a major complication, a problem-causing one, introduced into the golden mean theory. Golden mean is talking about yourself, not doing this or that in excess or in deficiency, but getting the proper medium course, which is perfect. Now, however, we are asked to consider your relation with somebody else. And if you give away a good bit of what you've got, perhaps more than prudence might deem wise for the help of your sibling being your fellow creature then is that wise it might be very wise in spirit terms in terms of the heart but it might not it might raise a question regarding the so-called golden mean here's a man who barefoot to the Kaaba stride sacred stone of Islam while his friend a walk to mosque will scarce abide 
So how is how are they going, each of them, to judge of the golden mean? One guy thinks it's a big effort to just open the front door. The other guy thinks it's nothing at all to go barefoot on a long hike. What's the golden mean between the excess and the deficiency? Everything has to do with knowledge of your nature, which will involve an understanding of its range. So if you a middle path would trace, my friend, true beginning, you must know and know the end. It's fun to talk about this. Aristotle taught the moral golden mean, bad excess and bad deficiency between. Both the latter ills attempting to portray, he would clarify our aim, the central way. William Blake, though, raised a problem. How can we tell the middle from a superfluity? What's enough you cannot grasp, he claimed, until feeling what's too much, you know you've had your fill. Uh, it's one of Blake's Proverbs of Hell, so-called. There's actually a lot more heaven than hell in them because, like Milton, he knew how to turn hell into heaven. William Blake's proverb says, you never know what's enough until you know what's more than enough. Not enough, the golden mean, too much, looked fine, diagrammed along a balanced three-part line, like that of a tree, right? The tree trunk in the middle and the the branches spreading out. But suppose we want to travel high and deep. These may prove equivalent. That happens in the world of dreams. What you fear and what you desire are often the same thing or very closely connected. And when you go deep, you also go high. Ah, there's no, in, in fact, Freud pointed out that altus in Latin means both deep and high. They didn't care to make a distinction. So how to keep clear excessive depth or height deficiency? Are you quite perplexed by our dimensions three? Perplexed only insofar as you begin to realize that the idea of self-realization by keeping to the middle and not going doing excessive or, or deficient things, with, as Aristotle taught, is a path to self-realization. He was the first great philosopher of self-realization ethics. But it's also true that when you go exploring of the limits of human understanding and feeling, you, you rise very high, you, you sink very deep, and then all, the, all the, this measurement uh, calculus with, piece, with a line on a piece of paper somehow uh, doesn't work very well, and yet that also is value. Um, moderation, or uh, shall we say, balance is a value, but ex so is exploration, and so is uh, the, the, the wish to attain depth and intensity. So we have a balance ethic versus an intensity ethic. The first might be called classical and the second romantic. One could lecture or explore for hours about this. That's the kind of a poem Rumi writes there. Um, what do you call him on, at the airport? Uh, runways. It's a runway. To a flight of your own. Now I have said the things that I most wished to say, but because uh, uh, it seems to me that the teaching by surprise is something very special, extremely special. Uh, communion with nature is a better known theme, but Rumi does that very well. I'll treat it more briefly now, but I think, I hope that I will do it well because I feel that he has done it superbly. Con, uh, communion with nature, and we better be uh, get alert to that rather fast, right? In view of climate change, threatening, threatening an end both to ourselves and to our planet. Let's try Dialogue 65. This is about a man who used to be a king and gave it up to become a Sufi hermit 
on the seashore in tune with nature. Adam Ibrahim was sitting on the shore. Beggar now, he darned his monkish cowl once more. One who'd followed him approached, an old emir, former subject of the man he still held dear, kissed his foot and then, surprised, bewildered, bowed. For a king, monastic poverty allowed. Once the regions of his realm extended wide, now to mend a cowl the sheikh is satisfied. All the world a single forest then had seemed, he a spirit lion who of hunting dreamed. Now his heart can sense the rapt astonishment that his changed condition to the viewer lent. Mere politeness for the worldly folk is fine, thick the veils that cover what their hearts design. Men of spirit penetrate one's depth of heart, skilled to see the deep, may God himself impart. Aha, perhaps better uh, for companionship than all those courtiers and flatterers at court. Next the sheikh into the sea a needle throws. Fish, he cries, the needle's whereabouts disclose. Hundred thousand heads above the sea arise, each with golden needle, pleasing royal eyes. Soberly the sheikh has turned to the emir. Do you wonder why in cowl I now appear? Fun to comment on this one. Ibrahim called Ibn Adam renounced the throne. In monastic habit, glad he'd live alone. Buddha-like his power in deep humility, as to Francis, St. Francis, creatures of the air and sea listened to the voice of one who joyed to praise, king of all the kings and laud his works and ways. To King Solomon, to mirror he begins, who could speak with eagle, hoopoe, emmets, jinns. Buddha touched the earth to show where strength may dwell. Hundred blossoms then in confirmation fell. I love this Buddha story. He ten thousand demons banished by a thought. Such the power that once awakened love has wrought. Who the center reached has felt a kinship wide. Sowing on the shore, the holies glorified. Now in the very next poem, uh, this would be, used to be king, and would be a pious hermit of nature, continues with a bit more interesting uh, illumination. Though the lordship of my realm indeed was great, greater far the heart realm's power in humble state. Merely outward was the former, now within you to find the hidden trace of power begin. One to town an orchid, orchard twig may freshly bring, Yet the orchard whole is no one carrying. While who the orchard then, of which the world entire is a little falling leaf, would not desire? Soul, be gratified with joy that longings bear for the distant orchard. Once you're made aware, let the yearning be the herald of the bloom. Deep inhale the fragrance, blessed prophetic boon. All you need's a breath of Eden, only one, and you'll have the orchard's timeless halidom, meaning holiness, new aroma to the orchard's bearing you. Heart and senses feel what love will soon be strew. 
Soon as fragrant inhalation, Jacob filled, all the flaming of his yearning would be stilled. Rumi doesn't say anything at all but that, about the Joseph sto Jacob story, but it's also a Joseph story. Um, I've got to tell you this, we'll have to do it briefly, but it's such a beautiful story. It's uh, a story of a magic shirt. Uh, I've talked to people uh, in uh, Egypt when I taught there for a month, and these being brought up in Islam, they'd never heard the story of Joseph and the coat of many colors. That's in the Hebrew scriptures, and that they are holy to Islam, but they're not so quite so widely uh, taught or widely known. And in America, I have taught to people not raised Muslim and asked them if they know the story of Joseph uh, or Jacob in the magic shirt. Joseph's, it's really Joseph's shirt. He gave it to Jacob. Joseph in the magic shirt rather than the coat of many colors. And guess what? Not a one had ever heard of it. Isn't it nice to get the traditions together? Because when you compare your Joseph stories, you find deep wisdom in each one of them. But whereas the coat of many colors was an exciter of envy, we'll see in a moment that the magic shirt is a means of reconciliation. Here's what happened. You know that Joseph was put in a well uh, by his uh, brothers who were deeply jealous of him. He had 11 of them. And uh, uh, he was uh, found and uh, taken as a slave to Egypt and was bought by a uh, uh, an official, and the official got the idea. Well, he got an idea from his wife. Uh, the fact is that the wife thought Joseph was the most beautiful man in Egypt. That's an interesting new thing that you didn't know from the Bible. It's introduced into the Quran. Joseph is just very simply the, the handsomest man in all the country. And uh, uh, the official's wife promptly fell in love with him, or, or if that's the word, I don't know. You, what she did was she, she, she tried to seduce him, to attract him, she pursued him. It didn't work. Uh, and so she blamed the victim, not herself. And she called uh, Joseph a, a himself. He, she called him a seducer. She said he was trying to pursue her or stalk or assault her and immediately he was thrown into jail but rumors started to circulate anybody who knew anything about the, the woman and and had looked at all at the behavior of joseph knew this couldn't be quite right and so the official called joseph out of jail and asked him to defend himself and joseph said look if you think i was the pursuer why don't you try to explain the fact that the shirt, you can see it, is ripped and badly ripped behind, not in front, but behind. Somebody was clearly chasing me, do you not, do you not think? And Joseph was immediately free. Well, that's a happy story. But then uh, uh, later on, Joseph, of course, becomes second in command to Pharaoh and gives gifts. And when the famine comes and his uh, brothers and father, or brothers are asking for a gift, father is left at home. He not only gives them all they need, but he gives them something else very special, the shirt, which by the blessed power of the ultimate being has been dowered with a very special gift. And he tells his brothers about the gift. He says, Put this, ask, ask our father Jacob just to put uh, this shirt over his face or you can do it for him and it will cure him of his blindness. That's another thing you didn't know from the Bible. Jake, Jacob was so aggrieved at what he thought was the permanent loss of his most loved son that he cried his eyes out. He went blind with misery and sorrow and now 
we have the miracle cure. And of course, um, well, I don't have to tell you what happened. Uh, I want first to, I'll tell you that in a minute. First, I want to tell you what happened, what, what, the next thing, uh, right next to what happened, is here are the brothers. They're all, uh, say, uh, several hundred miles away. And Jacob, Jacob is a prophet. There are many prophets in Islam not recognized as such in the Bible. Jacob was a prophet, and he knew that something was on the way. And he knew it because he could smell the fragrant aroma. Joseph's sacred shirt gave forth such a powerful heavenly fragrance that it could be sensed hundreds of miles away by the heightened prophetic sensory equipment of Father Jacob. And he knew that something wonderful was going to happen. And what's more, he knew what it would be. So, of course, the, uh, uh, the shirt was laid upon his face and he was healed of blindness immediately. And the Persian poets fell in love with this, this symbol. And so they, they developed Joseph's aromatic shirt as an emblem of the way the spring itself, with all its blossom, blossomy fragrance, comes to rejuvenate the life of our planet. So here's my reply. I had to tell you that story. The reply is not terribly clear without it. Whence can Jacob gain the fragrant breath of air? Aromatic is the shirt his brothers bear. Gift from Joseph, whose compassion well is known. He to be the right hand, man of Pharaoh's groan, and with kindness linked to power, he'll bestow food for aid in famine. Too, he'll cure the woe Father Jacob felt, who'd cried himself quite blind, when his son abducted, comfort none he'd find. Save for this, the holy gift of prophet's sight. Jacob knew his boy'd be found and clothed in might. Thus, though I restoring fine aroma from Joseph's holy shirt, through desert air must come many miles. The father knows what helpers bring. So in cruel winter, we foretell the spring. Well, I have just one very more very short dialogue. I call it Symposium of Senses. I like it very much because basically what Rumi tells us is that when one sense is invigorated and enlivened to the beauty of the things of nature, it enlivens all the other senses because they're all basically from one source and they, they glory in unified action. That's a variant of what Rumi's colleague, Ibn Arabi, whom I mentioned before, uh, said when he, when he wrote a poem to tell us that when a person prays, one person, that person is an entire congregation at prayer because every atom, every molecule, every blood and vessel and artery, every nerve fiber and uh, sinew, every thought and feeling, are all praying with him. A vast congregation is led by that single mullah, though the congregation be invisible, they are there. So let's listen to this Rumi uh, praise of the senses in their concord, in their symposium. That's Greek for drinking party. All the senses five together are entwined, for they all from single origin have climbed. Strengthening of one will nourish all the rest. He'll be cup boy, bringing others wine the best. If a mystery to one sense be revealed, he'll assure it will to all be unconcealed. As a love will grow when eye looks into eye, each the other's hidden power bringing nigh. Any sense a loving eye for all can aid when attracting strengths 
that deeply are inlaid. Any person praying claims Ibn Arabi is an imam congregation leader. He guides in chorus all the body organs. They form the flock he leads while each to God will pray. Every organ, all the rest will teach and aid. So a little world of singers will be made. Adam, who the names of God could tell, had first shown the central human soul as universe. Uh, uh, it says in the Quran that uh, Adam recited all the names to the angels, usually taken to be the angels' own names. But Sufi teaching uh, says that the names of the angels are qualities of the Lord God himself. And there are 99 rubrics of them. Those are the 99 names of God. God himself is nameless. He actually cannot possibly have any names, but you can name some of his qualities. And in fact, 99 of them are mentioned in the Quran. And uh, when uh, Adam, if Adam could name those names, he had a knowledge of them, and that brought him extremely close to the very deep depths of the nature of God. So the senses too, we here have learned, can serve each as mentor to the others, that with verve all their cups uplifting may together come in a single sensory symposium to the Lord in heaven, greatly praising him as with loving eyes, the choiring seraphim. Thank mm -hmm. you.